Hi there, I'm Maddie and I serve on the Joy Production team. Thank you so much for joining us online today. Through taking the time to listen to this message, we pray you'll not only come to know more about God, but you'll come to know more about yourself as well. Once again, thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy today's message. All right. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with each and every one of you. For those of you that are joining us online, I just want to welcome you. And for those of you joining us live right here in St. Cloud, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Last week, Pastor Brian drew our attention to Acts chapter 2 and four different things that the uh, early Christians ended up devoting themselves to. And the first one was the apostles' teaching. Now, I think it's important for you and I to understand that at this time, there was no New Testament. There was no red letter words of Jesus. Everything was passed on by word of mouth. So with, by word of mouth, Jesus taught the disciples. He trained them, grew them up, and then the disciples become the apostles. And then by word of mouth, they taught and trained and discipled the early first century Christians. So as they're hearing things for the first time, like forgive your neighbor and uh, forgiving your enemies, when they're hearing things for the first First time, like um, the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, these things just kind of grew inside of them. They internalized them, and then they didn't only just internalize it, they ended up applying it to their life because they wanted to live a life in honor of the one they called their Lord and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, in my opinion, fellowship is kind of a pretty churchy word, so we can kind of look at it as just hanging out, doing life together with other people. Now, we might think devoting yourself to hanging out and doing life with other people doesn't seem that hard. Like, why would you have to devote yourself to doing that? I'll ask you a question. Have you ever, as a family, tried to make plans to hang out with another family? You realize that you got to look at your schedule, and then you got to look at your spouse's schedule if you're married, and then you got to have them look at their schedules, and then hopefully you can decide on kind of a time frame you can hang out in, potentially a specific day, and then you got to think, what are we going to do? What are we going to do together? Are we going to eat? Please, please help us to eat together. Is anyone allergic to anything? And then once you've got to that point, you're, depending on your stage of life, do we bring the kids or don't we bring the kids? Sometimes it's easier to bring the kids. Sometimes it's easier to just leave them at home, isn't it? So there's this devotion to fellowship that we need to have with one another. And then on top of that, whenever people get together, Sometimes someone says something that ends up offending another person. Have you ever witnessed this before? You know, you're all hanging out, all having fun. Maybe you're joking around, and then someone says something, and it's like, ooh, ooh. Now, in other circles, there might be a knockdown, drag out, fight, screaming, yelling, pulling hair, all of that type of stuff. But as Christians, we're more mature than that. So we just decide we're not ever coming again. We're just like, you know what? I'm done. I'm never coming to this again. You offended me. That's it. But what we are supposed to do as we're devoted to fellowship, we say, wow, that hurt. And I'm going to process it. And potentially I'm going to end up speaking to you about it. But because I'm committed to this fellowship thing, you and I are going to get through this together. And then we're going to move forward. 
The early first century Christians also devoted themselves, it says, to breaking of bread together. Now, here we got food again. And again, food is, is awesome. But I think a better, um, a better idea of, of what is taking place here is that they're really talking about communion. Now, communion involves a lot more than just taking a piece of bread and drinking some juice. It also involves the person sitting themselves before God and just say, search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. If there's anything wicked in my actions or my inactions, or if there's anything wicked in my motivation for my actions, Please help me see those things. But on top of that, help me work on those things. So when you have a group of people, these early first century Christians, on a continual basis, sitting before the presence of God and just saying, Lord, is there any wicked thing in me? And if there is, help me to make those adjustments. Doesn't that create a beautiful place, a beautiful group of people to end up being a part of? They also devoted themselves to prayer. Now, you have probably have some type of concept of prayer. I like thinking of prayer as being a conversation between you and God. And the only thing I'm really going to point out here is just make sure it's a conversation between you and God. If you do all the talking, really what you're doing is you're lecturing God on all the things you think God is supposed to do. Just keep in mind, God maybe might sort of have a little honey-do list for you and me to do as well. So it's a conversation. At the end of Acts chapter 2, there's this verse 47 that says, And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. He added to their number daily. And this is what kind of comes to my mind. They grew. They grew, they grew, and they grew. Not just by addition, but by multiplication. And they just kept on growing, and they just kept on growing. So I'm thinking, wow, this is incredible. It inspires and challenges me. But I I only don't think, wow, I think how. How did this take place? How did they end up creating such an environment where their numbers were added to daily? And then some thoughts came to my mind that I want to share with you today. It's that they were practicing their beliefs, not only just in the temple, but they were practicing their beliefs in real life. The practicing of being friendly or being a servant or loving your neighbor was not just limited to the times they were in the temple. This is something they actually did. Being a Christian was not something that they just decided that they kind of, you know, did on the side. It was something that they were. It took up their very being. And also, the work that God was doing in their life, they allowed that work to then affect the people that they were around. They allowed it to rub off on the people that they interacted with. Because if we only allow the presence of God to rub off on the other people that we're interacting with at church, then the only people that are going to be affected by the presence of God in me and in you is the people that are already here. But if we allow that work in us to then rub off on other people, then something special can really take place. For the past 
few weeks, maybe several months, we've been really intentional as a church of doing some things that helps us be more like that. You've heard a lot of serve day. I was thinking about it. You've probably heard as much about serve day after serve day as you have beforehand. But I think it's really good for us to to learn and think back about the things that we've done because something special happened that day or that week. 110 people served over a combined 800 hours to benefit and bless our community. Not just so that they would know they matter to you or that they matter to a church, but most importantly, that they matter to God. And we were able to do that, and it was really, really wonderful. And then on top of that, right on the heels of Serve Day, Pastor Brian launched this You Matter card campaign. Hopefully, some of you have picked some up over the last several weeks. And the whole idea of this You Matter campaign is to do intentional, random acts of kindness. Intentional, random acts of kindness to someone to hopefully help them know that they matter to you, but that they also matter to God. Now, Hopefully, just like you, um, I've, I've had a, quite a few experiences with this You Matter card thing, and I'd like to share uh, one of them with you today. So just a few weeks ago, I'm sitting in the second service, and this thought came to me, Tommy, you're going to pay for someone's meal today. And I was like, all right, all right. So after church, uh, we go to a restaurant and I grab the You Matter card and put it in my pocket because I'm all ready to, to help someone understand that they matter. So we're standing in line and you can tell we didn't go to a fancy restaurant. We're standing in line. Okay. <laughs> so we're standing in line and this person in front of me has an orange t-shirt on with a scripture verse on it. It said Ephesians something, something. And I thought to myself, oh, I could like bless another Christian and this would be great. You know, help them kind of understand that God matters or that they matter to God and, and you know, maybe encourage them. Maybe they're going through a rough time or whatever. Maybe they're wearing the Christian t-shirt, but they don't really believe what it says. So they're standing in line and then another line opens up. So Angela and I, we go to this line and here they are, they're ordering their food and we're just starting. So I'm not paying attention to anything that Angela's saying. She gives the entire order except for my food just depending on what I kind of feeling like that day. So I'm paying attention to what they're ordering. So they order one meal, two meals and it's like, okay, well there's two people and I'm just waiting, you know, just kind of seeing this out. Then they order a third meal like, there's only two of you. They order a fourth meal, and I'm looking around. Who is with these people? By the time they're done, their bill is more expensive than what our family of five's bill was. So I did what any normal person would have done. I let them pay for it. <laughs> I stood there, and it was like, I wanted to help you matter, but not that much. <laughs> So, so, so Angela is finishing our order and we have some different things like, you know, extra pickles on this and no gravy on this, put shredded cheese. So it takes us a while up there. So another couple comes up and this just, just two people are older couple. And I thought, okay, this is, this is the people I'm supposed to go with. So they give their order one meal, 
two meals. And they said, then that was it. And I said, perfect. So I went over by them. I tapped the, them on the shoulder and I said, hey, I'd like to pay for your meal today. The wife looks at me. She goes, why? It's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a reason. So I told her, well, I was in church today and just felt like I really wanted to do something nice for someone. And as I'm doing this, the guy has his wallet out and he's putting the cash on the counter. And I'm like, dude, this goes against everything that I'm trying to do for you. And then he looks at me and he goes, well, it's already done. And I thought, what? It isn't supposed to be this hard. I'm just trying to help someone understand that they matter, that God loves them, and I can't even give a card away. And it was so disappointing to me, but, but here's the thing that kind of came to me. I realized it's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And this really shouldn't come to a surprise to us because Pastor Brian's been telling us this for years now. It's simple, but it's not easy. And if we were to go to look in Scripture and some of the interactions that Jesus had with the disciples, we would realize that, man, it's simple, but it's not easy. In fact, Jesus had some really fun experiences with the disciples even before they were his disciples. And you realize real quick that he kind of put them in positions where intentionally, where it wasn't simple, or it was simple, but it wasn't easy. So we're going to read about one of them today. It says this in John chapter 1. It says, The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his own followers. Jesus walked by. John looked at him and said, See the Lamb of God. John's two followers heard him say this and then followed Jesus. Now, here's, here's what I picture in my mind, all right? So these two guys are following Jesus, and they're adopting the principle that everyone adopts when you're trying to follow someone. You don't follow too close because otherwise they're going to notice. And you don't follow too far away because then you might lose them. So they're just following Jesus going to try to see what, what Jesus is doing, all of that type of stuff. And then, then it tells us that Jesus turns around. And I think the guy's like, oh, oh, what do we do now? And, and here's the thing. If you want to know if someone's following you, just abruptly turn around and stop and look at them. If they stop too, they were following you. If they don't stop, they're just going to walk past you like you're just a weirdo. And, and they just keep like, why would that guy just stop in the middle of the road? So, so Jesus stops. He turns around. And then he asks them a question. He says, what are you looking for? They answered, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They followed him and saw where he lived. They stayed with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John's words and had followed Jesus. The first thing he did was to find his brother Simon. He said to him, we have found the Christ. Andrew took Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw Simon, he said, you are Simon, the son of John. Your name will be Cephas. The name Cephas means Peter or a rock. The next day, Jesus wanted to go to the country of Galilee. 
he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from the town of Bethsaida. Andrew and Peter were from this town also. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. He's the one the early preachers wrote about. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of the town of Nazareth? Now, Nathanael's response could seem kind of weird to us. Like, why would Nathanael, when he hears his friend say that he found Jesus, the, the Messiah, why, why wouldn't Nathanael be all excited? He's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, the reason why we're kind of confused about that is because we don't fully understand the culture at that time. We don't understand the sociological climate at that time. So I'm going to clue you in on some things. Nazareth was the home of a Roman garrison. And as a result of that, the Jewish people didn't like Nazareth. They despised Nazareth. Because whenever they heard of Nazareth, they heard, they just thought in their mind of the occupying force in their land, the Romans. On top of that, Nazareth did not have a good moral climate about itself. Sure, there were Jewish people there, but they weren't really Jewish people. They weren't practicing their faith. So Nathaniel responds to, to Philip and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Philip responds by, by saying, come and see. Come and see. So when I read this just a few weeks ago, there was a pattern that stuck out to me that I'm hoping that I can kind of lay out for you so that you can grab hold of it too. So these two guys, they start following Jesus again, not too close and not too far away. And then Jesus looks at them and says, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Think about this. The son of God looks you in the face and asks you a question. Uh, where are you staying? And I think, what a bozo question is that? You have the attention of Jesus and you go, where are you staying? And then Jesus responds with a come and see. Come and see. So these two disciples we learn is Andrew and John. So they follow Jesus and they hang out with Jesus. There is no miracles. There's no sermon on the mountainside. There's no walking on water. There's no huge crowds. They're just following Jesus, going to where he's staying and hanging out with Jesus. But something took place that afternoon that Andrew became so convinced that Jesus was the son of God, his Messiah, a person the Jewish people have been looking for for thousands of years hanging out, no miracles, and convinced that this is the one we've been looking for. So convinced that it says the first thing Andrew did is he ran to go get his brother, whose name is Simon at the time, and says, we found him, we found him. And then Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. The next day, Jesus is walking again, and he comes across a guy by the name of Philip, Philip, we don't know what he was doing. He was just hanging out, doing his thing. And then Jesus says, follow me. Okay. Philip puts down whatever he was putting down and just decides to follow after Jesus. 
And the same exact thing happens. There's no miracles. There's no sermon on the mountainside. There's no thousands of people following. There's no, there's no groupies. There's no any of that type of stuff. He's just hanging out with Jesus. And then Philip, after spending a few hours, then runs to his friend Nathaniel. And he says, we found him. We found him. It's, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And we know what Nathaniel's response was. Nathaniel was like, Ugh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Philip says, come and see. Come and see. And Philip grabs Nathaniel and brings him to Jesus. Over and over again. I see this pattern, which hopefully you've seen now as well. Come and see. Come and see. And it's a really, really beautiful thing. It's a beautiful principle. It's a principle that I believe early first century Christians adopted because how else were they going to let go of their Jewish faith and open their eyes to to Jesus and who he was and embrace this new thing called Christianity? How were they going to be able to do that if they didn't experience Jesus for themselves. The sad thing as I look over history is I feel as the church, we've kind of lost the come and see principle. And we've more adopted this principle of the doors open. The doors open. If you want to come and, 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 and see who Jesus is, then, then the doors open at this time and that time. Show up, grab a seat, and then you can turn around and leave. I hope you come. We've adopted this idea of we'll just give an invitation like, hey, hope you can make it, and then, and then just, just pray that they do. Instead of what we've seen here represented in these last few verses, we read about them going to someone and then bringing them to Jesus. It's very different than just inviting them to Jesus. So how has this happened? What, what certain things have taken place that have kind of brought us to this place of letting go of come and see and then kind of embracing this, the doors open mentality? And I'm just going to kind of go through a few things with you. And I'd encourage you to think about your own life a little bit and see if maybe you've embraced knowingly or maybe unknowingly some of these things. And then hopefully, prayerfully, you'll be able to make some adjustments in your life. So the first thing that happened was our faith became private. Our faith became private. You know, America, we're open to all types of faith but you better not talk about it, right? It's only for you. It isn't for anyone else. Pray all you want, do all the things you want, but don't tell anyone else about it. Just keep it to yourself. In many ways, our Judeo-Christian values have found themselves in the closet while things not Judeo-Christian values have found themselves on the forefront of everyone's thinking and in everyone's eyes. I've told people for many years now, the world isn't changing, the world is just turning. All of the things that we read about in the news and we see that's happening, all the things that are flaunted before us, uh, you know, in the media and in TV and in movies, all of those things existed when Jesus was here on the planet, physically. 
All of those things were here, but no one talked about those things. No one talked about sex and all of the weird, crazy things about that openly in public years ago. Couples didn't even talk about their own sex life, let alone talking about it in front of the world. So the world isn't changing. The world is just turning. So things that were on the forefront, like our Christian values and, and praying and doing all these different things, it's, it's turning to where now, now this is in the closet. Now this is just all out here on display. Our faith has become private. It's, it's, it's gone into a closet. And as a result, our closets have gotten bigger and our witness has gotten smaller. Our prayer closets have gotten bigger, but our witness has gotten smaller. We're like, I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray about that. Or we tell her, we, we hear of some need. We're like, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm going to go pray about it. Hopefully someone will meet that need and I'm going to pray that someone does. But if we allowed our prayer life to be a conversation, we'd understand that God is probably telling you to meet that need. But because we just tell God, God, you know, reach, reach my neighbor, reach my friend, that person at work, blah, 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 send someone. I have prayed, send someone, haven't you? Send someone. Jesus is like, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. So, so we become real comfortable in our prayer closets, but our witness has just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's a result of the first thing because our faith is supposed to be private as far as the world is concerned. So we keep going on. We've lost touch with the world around us. We've lost touch with the world around us. How did this happen? It's something that Pastor Brian has, has coined for, for a few years now. It's we're really good at making a point. We're just not so good at making a difference. You know, the church became something where we were, we were very big and out in the open of all of the things we were against. Why? Because we felt like our Christian values weren't being appreciated or accepted in the world anymore. So we're pushing against that. No, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. This is wrong, that's wrong. Don't do this, don't do that. And we're trying to do, and as a result, the church as a whole, like internationally, worldwide, the church as a whole has become more famous for all the things we're against as opposed to the things that we're for. And it's like, look, I'm for you. I'm just against this. Doesn't, doesn't get spoke on because all the world hears is against, 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 against. And then the idea of us trying to show love to the people around us and helping them understand that they matter is a foreign message to them because they think to themselves, there is the church, the Christian people, and then there's all the rest of us. Why, why are you trying to interact in, in us? Just stay in your closet. Do your own thing. And again, it's, it's the complete opposite of what we read about in Scripture. We should be adopting this come and see. Come and see. The last thing I wanted to point out as far as this is concerned is that many people that consider themselves Christians 
are lacking a God type of moment in their life where they realize beyond a shadow of a doubt for themselves that God is real, that he sent his son Jesus to save the world, to save me. You see, first century Christians, they had those God type of moments. They didn't look back to what happened in grandma's life or maybe what happened in their friend's life. They experienced it for themselves. They experienced a very real encounter with God himself. And as a result, they had a conviction inside of them. Not a conviction as in sometimes it's, it's seen as like, uh, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I mean a conviction like this is true, this is right, and I'm living according to what I know. When it becomes something that, well, it was, it was, you know, grandma had an experience way long ago. Or my parents, you know, I, they, they brought me to church and I guess this is just what I'm going to do on Sunday mornings. When the rubber meets the road, Pastor Brian shares, when what you want for you is different than what God wants for you, then all of a sudden that conviction isn't there. And you end up taking a path that God never intended for you to take. And we could say, well, whose fault is that? And I, I really just think it's because we don't, we don't seek after it enough to just have an experience of God on our own. And we're caught up. We're caught up with the idea that those experiences need to be miracle-related. That it needs to be something incredible where, where something amazing happens, where an angel spoke to us face to face, or, or we saw Jesus, or, or some miracle, I don't have a hand, now I have a hand. We, we think it all has to pertain to the miraculous, but when I read this portion of scripture, all John and Andrew did was hang out with Jesus. All Philip did was hang out with Jesus. And by hanging out with him, there was such a conviction there that we found the one we've been looking for for thousands of years. And I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to him. There's no substitute. There's no substitute for experiencing God for yourself. Now, I want you to hear me some, hear, hear this. You can be a Christian you can serve, you can follow after God, you can help other people follow after God without ever personally feeling like you've ever had this God encounter in your life. If you've been serving God and you haven't had it though, don't be satisfied by existing there. Say, God, I want that moment with you. I want that moment for you. This thought hit me as we were leading up to today. What if Jesus was looking at you in the face and said, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? And then you have an opportunity to say, Jesus, fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. And right there is your God encounter. So what does the come and see principle look like? You experiencing Jesus for yourself. You experiencing Jesus for yourself. 
that could be in a corporate setting like this. Man, I was charged up during the worship time. Well, I'm clapping in songs that I've never clapped in before because that's a song you just raise your hands to. You hear me? I was clapping in songs I haven't clapped in before because I was. you can experience God in this corporate setting. You can experience God in your prayer closets, but you better experience God. You better experience God. Then, then, go back to someone you know. Go back to someone you know. Where did Andrew go? Andrew went to the one person he probably knowed, knowed. The one person he knew. <laughs> I'm a professional communicator. He went to the one person he knew better than anyone else, his brother. And he, that's where he went. Philip, where did he go? He went to his friend, Nathaniel. He didn't go to a stranger, didn't go to someone he just met on the street. He went to someone he knew. And I thought about this. It is so much easier for you and I to share our faith when we're in a country not of our own on a mission trip. It's so much easier to feel like we're equipped and we're energized to go to little kids on the street and blow up balloons and tell them all about Jesus. And maybe it's because thousands of them come because they haven't seen a balloon before. But it's so much easier to, to tell people on the street than it is to go across our yard. So, I got a story for you. Go to someone you know. This is what we see happen in the story of the woman at the well. Those of you that are more versed in, in Bible stories. The woman went there to get water. She has an encounter with Jesus. No miracles. No miracles. There was no, uh, uh, let me heal you. There was no, let me show you what I can do. Look, boom, bread. Boom, fish, lunch. Jesus, there wasn't any of that. The woman, it says, left the bucket by the well. What she came there for didn't, only, didn't matter anymore. She left the bucket at the well, and then she went back to her town. She went to the place where people knew her, and she knew them. You go back to people you know, and then you bring them to Jesus. Don't invite them. Bring them. Bring them to Jesus. It says at the end of the story of the woman at the well, this is just a few chapters later in the Bible from what we read about with, with the disciples going to one another. This is just a few chapters later. The people of the woman at the well, her town, they went to her and they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. How does that happen? She had an experience with God. She went to the people she knew and she brought them to Jesus. It's as simple as that. That's, that's, what, that's what we see right in, our, in front of our eyes as we're reading through the stories of the first century Christians. And I think 
it can be the story of the Christians today, amen? Of the followers of today. That can be our story where we experience God. We went to someone that we know and we brought them to Jesus so they can experience the same thing. That's how God adds to their number day after day after day after day. So it was 28 days ago today that Pastor Brian launched this You Matter card. 28 days ago today. It is 28 days from now to Joy by George. And maybe, maybe over the course of these 28 days, you've, you've had opportunities to give the You Matter card. And, and I have too. That day, I was in a drive-through later that evening and I paid for someone's meal behind me and asked the lady to, to give, give her the You Matter card. So I stayed, I stayed true to some extent of what I felt God led me to do to some extent. But if I'm honest with you, I know I missed it because I let a dollar figure stand in between me doing what I really felt God wanted me to do. I had the best intentions. I was prepared, but I just didn't follow through. So for 28 days, maybe you've had the best intentions had the best intentions and that for some reason you forget or for some reason you get intimidated, for some reason you get scared and that's because it's simple but it's not easy. This, this isn't going away by the way. I really think this is something we need to continue to embrace and live out in our, in our Christian life. But now we got another 28 days to arguably one of the biggest events our church has had in 28 years of existence. And we are empowered now. We're empowered now to think about, have I experienced Jesus? Do I need to experience him again? Who can I go to to then bring them on that day? And I will tell you, the struggle has been real with me because I'm trying to think about how can I be leading at Joy by George and doing the things I'm doing while I need to bring someone there. And I've been wrestling, trying to figure out how can I do this? How can I encourage the, the church to do this if, if I don't, with all of my efforts, try to do it as well? Because here's the thing, there's many of you that are going to be serving that day. Do not let serving keep you from bringing someone to Jesus. Don't let, oh, I'm, in, I'm, I'm serving in kids today, but I really felt like they really needed to hear from Pastor Brian's heart, but I'm serving in kids. They know how to sit in a chair. Bring them 95%. Let Pastor Brian bring them the next five. Maybe better yet, let Jesus bring them the next five. And it isn't always tied to this church. You can bring them to Jesus in your home. You can bring them to Jesus across the lunch table at work. 
Experience him for yourself. Go to someone you know. Bring them to Jesus. Joy by George is a perfect, perfect way for you and I to flex our muscles a little bit and do something that the early Christians did. And we're gonna see God do something special. Amen?